think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is the Boys in Short Pants, episode 110, the 111th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I'm Mason Renville. And uh, today we have joining us a returning guest uh, after a, a very tumultuous, uh, I don't even remember, it was about two years ago I think you were on the show? Uh, That's right. Professor Kevin Milligan of UBC, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me here. I'm happy, happy to chat. Of course, and you have had a very interesting year uh, on a secondment or interchange uh, to the Privy Council office, sort of working at the heart of government uh, in a policy role. As uh, I suppose, uh, I suppose you were there for your economics expertise and not for your taste in uh, cured meats. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I, we wanted to talk to you about how that went and uh, sort of how yeah, I mean we could talk a little bit about how you got into it and and sort of what that entailed and then. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, you were at the center of government for one of the most interesting years <laughs> that we've had in, in quite a long time. So, yeah, I just wanted to, to pick your brain and uh, sort of elucidate for our listeners uh, kind of what, what it looks like at the heart of government during a crisis. That's great. Now, I wasn't personally at the heart of government. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't the heart of government. I was adjacent to the heart of government. Let's be clear. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, that's, so happy that's to as close take, as the show is going to get. <laughs> the living beating heart right here on your podcast app the yeah, architect of the federal government you're responsible government, for all the decisions kevin so yeah, let's, uh, yeah, let's dive uh, right in <laughs> that as we all know that would be the clerk yes of course so yes. let, let's start with sort of what happened because one day you were um you know a prominent twitter economist and uh professor at ubc and then the next day, you were you found yourself working, uh, I guess, from home, um, but for PCO. Did like the government reach out to you, sort of, in the initial stages of COVID, and they were consulting you, and they decided to bring you on board um, for a short period or something along those lines? Yeah, that's that's basically it. I was uh, uh, on a few calls during um, March and and uh, early April and into April. As some of these emergency programs are being put into place, you know, Sunday meetings where they were deciding on how to spend tens of billions of dollars that they hadn't <laughs> thought of a week before, um, you know, uh, just going over some uh, uh, of the details of the program with various people and and uh, advising. And I was also on a couple of calls uh, with, uh, you know, uh, the prime minister and, and others, um, you know, Talking, giving some briefings just on what the hell is going on and trying to get uh, on top of it. Um, and uh, then in early June, I, I, I got an email or a call from uh, from the clerk of the Privy Council and uh, wanted to have a chat with me. Um, gave him a call and, and, and this is what, what arose. Now, I, I don't know enough. I didn't ask you know, on uh, whose idea this this whole thing was, but um, he um, um, suggested I, I, I do an interchange thing, which is essentially they paid my UBC salary and I uh, worked for them um, for the last uh, 10 and a half months. Um, what was important to me in that uh, was for this to work, I, I really thought it had to be important that there was buy-in all around because, you know, if I, someone wants me there, but a bunch of people don't, um, especially when you're not actually in the room, when you're doing it remotely, mm -hmm. um, that would be hard. And um, chatting around, I, I got a sense, um, you know, uh, all of the, the four corners were, were on board. That would be, you know, PCO, PMO, 
finance minister office in, in the finance ministry. Um, I, you know, um, was able to ascertain that they were all really keen about me coming along and wanted to have some input. So that made me think like I wasn't going to be stepping on a lot of toes coming in and have knives in my back or anything. Um, and that was not the case I, 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 that I had knives in my back. It was certainly the case that they were all supportive. Um, and so uh, I said yes, and we uh, wrote up some contracts and uh, and got it done. So, yeah, I mean, that is not the uh, it doesn't happen that often. Um, external experts are not brought into government incredibly often. Um, the context here, I think, is, you know, pretty unique and exceptional. Um, and it was pretty clear, I think, early on as an observer that the center was going and looking uh, two outside voices. You made reference to uh, a consulting call with the prime minister. I think that was reported on by the Globe and others that there was a handful of economists that they got together for sort of uh, round tables early on to provide external advice, um, which I think is a smart move for any organization often to, ex uh, to seek external feedback. Um, and then you found yourself working from Burnaby um, for PCO. Um, I guess is where you were formally housed, if we can put it that way. Um, what was what was that like? Because remind me, you've never had any previous experience working for the federal government. You're not someone who's worked for finance before. Um, so uh, in, a, in a staff I, position, to be clear. So I actually I worked as a summer student once back <laughs> in 1998 uh, when I was a graduate student. I spent a summer working uh, at finance with a uh, with. Keith Horner, who old finance people will know, um, that was great. Uh, I also spent four or five months on a secondment in a same kind of thing, an interchange thing with finance in 2016 with a tax expenditure review, which was ah, yes. uh, early in the first mandate uh, of this government. Was that a full-time um, job? It was my impression it was sort of a part-time panel. Yeah, yeah, that was. I, okay. I, 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 I was uh, a bit more... Uh, closer to full-time and I was like 75% of my time or something okay. like that, that fall. So I was working on it a bit more regularly than, than uh, the others in the panel. Um, so yeah, I had some experience with, with finance um, going into it. My appointment was uh, at the Privy Council office. Uh, my official title was like advisor to the clerk. Um, everyone agreed that was a nice way to do things uh, um, in that it was just a nice way of, you know, uh, given how closely the PMO and PCO work on things, this is just the mm -hmm. right place for an outside expert to sit. And uh, as for bringing an outside expert in, one of uh, the ways the role was described to me and certainly turned out to be true was they conceived of me as kind of like uh, a vessel for outside expertise into uh, you know the um, the center of government, the heart of government, as you were saying, um, and so you know whatever expertise I might bring, uh, that's fine. But I have a good Rolodex. I know when was talking about inflation or talking about uh, the long-term patterns of growth or looking at uh, poverty measurement or whatever. I kind of know who to call, and I spend a lot of time on Zoom calls with various experts trying to figure out how different things worked, especially in areas where I didn't know much myself. I, I, I learned a lot and I will right now thank all of those people who took my calls uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, because that's what I was doing. I was gathering information from others and then using that to form advice that I would give uh, to the clerk and through him to, to government. So the relationship between PCO and PML, I think, is one that a lot of outsiders have difficulty kind of characterizing because it's a very closely symbiotic relationship in a way that 
most departments and most ministerial offices don't quite have. Uh, PMO and PCO, of course, are famously housed in the same building, the, the, the now Office of the Prime Minister and Privy Council, which is formerly called Langevin Bloc. Uh, so I just want to get your sense uh, from someone who, who came in kind of from the outside, worked at PCO, what you sort of felt uh, that relationship was like in terms of its dynamics and in, in terms of how it was different than other things you'd seen in government. Yeah, um, there was certainly uh, a very tight relationship. Uh, people know each other very well. They, uh, uh, it's not um, um, particularly hierarchical when it comes to daily stuff. Uh, I was invited to just email people in PMO if I needed to know what was going on or if I saw something weird on an announcement that they, you know, uh, wanted me to pipe in. You know, for if there was something formal, obviously you would go up the chain of command in your office and then over. But on an informal level, uh, uh, things were pretty flat, which was interesting to me, given uh, how structured I perhaps thought it was. I should also say that uh, my experience in PCO was very unique. Again, sitting here live from the Milligan basement in Burnaby made it different, <laughs> so I didn't physically interact with people, but also just the nature of my appointment in this emergency weird thing. So I, I don't know my experience was typical. But what I learned about uh, that relationship, going into it, I, I, I kind of knew what the PCO was, I, I thought, um, you know, the center of the uh, administrative, uh, you know, side of government and, and getting stuff done. They would talk to different ministries and help them coordinate and get things done. The part of it that I wasn't really as aware of and certainly became more clear to me was it's also the kind of the office that is uh, the prime minister as minister that you're serving serving him and so when uh, the prime minister is going into briefings part of the role of pco is to prepare the prime minister for those briefings and you also uh you know you have to prepare uh the prime minister of the day for um what might be coming at him and say well here's your goal this person or this minister or this premier might be um you know uh, coming at it with this angle since your goal is this, maybe here's what you need to do. And I wasn't doing a lot of, I wasn't there as a strategist or anything. I wasn't doing that. This is, uh, you know, what I was not as prepared for. I, there was a surprise to me that, uh, uh, that you know, you're really there, uh, not some, not, in, in, you, it was a dual role. One, one, the PCO is coordinating all of the inter-agency and interdepartmental stuff, but is also there to serve the prime minister as his, uh, home home base and so, that was that hmm. was surprising I, I wasn't aware of that role and that certainly was there this is what, what you're describing i think academically has been referred to as you know there's there's two ways pco is historically um two roles uh historically pco has been viewed at uh more recently it's as the uh deputy minister to the prime minister which is what you're describing yeah. Um, which actually started historically around the time of Pierre Elliott Trudeau is when he brought in his own um, PCO yes. clerks and politicized the role of PCO. And then it sort of has has always kept that uh, characteristics. Um, but before that, it was more so the uh, civil servants representative to government or to, yeah, the, to cabinet. the executive yeah. to the cabinet. Yeah. Um, and so over, over the years, it has certainly been a sliding scale. Um, but it's not under Trudeau Sr., but under, or sorry, started under Trudeau Sr., um, and the same pattern has basically continued under virtually all of the prime ministers. 
um, that PCO yeah, I mean, in, in, is... in Ontario, isn't the position called like the secretary to the cabinet or something like that? Yes. Uh, so yeah. that that's obviously that second role of, of you know, executing orders that come from the from the uh, political side. The political side says we want program A and then the job of the cabinet secretary office or the PCO is to get that done. Um, so that's that's that role. The other role was the advisor that you're, you're, you're informing me was a is a newer role, but that's certainly uh, something that was there. Well, it's interesting because what you've described in terms of, of briefing the, the prime minister is very much a, a parallel role to what the prime minister's office does. I mean, what you're, the process you've described is very similar to, to what I did in my time on the Hill in terms of advising people going into meetings and such. So it's interesting. And I know that there is a, a sort of briefing system in place in the civil service, but I suspect, and this is me speculating here, but I suspect that it is more acutely political in that office than it is perhaps in most line departments or even central agencies across government. Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's, it's the only time I've sat in these meetings. I don't have a lot of basis for comparison, sure. but, you know, um, uh, I was certainly not there to provide political advice. And you, it, it, it uh, you know, I think I was not unique in the PCO in, in understanding that as my job. I mean, when uh, discussions inevitably sometimes brought some of that in, uh, you know, you're just uh, ears on the wall there, you, you, not not joining in on those conversations because that's not your role. So, so let's talk a little bit about the evolution of your role because you came in really mid-crisis um, at the sort of start of COVID really in Canada. Um, and as you've alluded to, um, we're part of the decision-making or the advice-giving around some of the cobbling together of the emergency programs in the sort of immediate. Um, and then you flow, and then your time, I believe, was until December, and then it was extended to encompass budget 2021. Um, so you really did get to go through almost an entire, I mean, normally it would be the entire financial cycle uh, or budget cycle. Um, but in this instance, there hadn't been a budget. The budget was canceled. So it was a little, little different. Uh, but you really did get to see the whole pattern of, you know, not a normal year, but uh, certainly what the budgetary pattern looks like. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's right. I, in the summer, uh, you know, normally it's a bit quieter in the summer. When I was a summer <laughs> student back in 98, it was certainly pretty quiet around uh, L'Espinade Laurier back in those days. Um, uh, but uh, this summer was, uh, this past, the summer of 2020 was not quiet. We were uh, dealing with a situation where we had five or six million Canadians not working, and that was unprecedented. That's what I entered into, where hundreds of billions of dollars were forecast to be going out, and you know there had not been a budget, as, as famously everyone is aware. Um, and so just getting some of those initial estimates, you know, in, in, in March, April, May, June, and just getting these programs designed with some idea of costing them. Um, and then as later in the summer, we start, start to, you know, put some uh, more numbers on and work towards the fall economic statement. Um, and so that cycle was certainly a focal point. And then again, uh, when, when that was done in late November, early December, uh, started working on, on the budget. Um, you know, uh, so it really was uh, in the summer of 2020, working on emergency programs and figuring out what they looked like and which ones uh, needed to be extended, which ones needed to be scrapped. Um, uh, uh, and uh, then as we got into the fall, it was much more taking a step back and say, holy hell, uh, what's going on here? Are we going to survive this? Uh, 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 what's what's the path look like going forward? And, and you know, in there we had some uh, uh, cabinet transitions that made it exciting as well and, and uh, uh, a, a fresh perspective on some of these issues. Uh, and uh, away we went. I'm going to presume that's a reference to a, 
our new Minister of Finance, uh, Christia Freeland, coming into the game um, in in the fall. For for those less familiar with cabinet shuffles and when when and where they happened. Yeah, did, I know. I, I, when I started off, it was uh, was Bill Morneau was the minister, and I've known him for a long time before he got into politics, even. And, and it was uh, great to work with him, uh, and uh, I really enjoyed uh, getting to know the the new finance minister as well and working with her. So there was a, a similar or a, an amount of continuity between Morneau's office in terms of the staff level and Freeland's office. Did you find there was a big difference um, between the finance ministers in terms of how they worked or? what their priority or emphasis or interests were? Um, there certainly was continuity in the offices. Some of the main uh, advisors uh, stayed around, which I think was really important mm -hmm. um, in that, you know, in the middle of this crisis to uh, bring in a bunch of new bodies, which is likely <laughs> not be a, yes, a good Ill idea. And, uh, you know, um, don't want to say a lot about how uh, the advising sure. went on and stuff, uh, but sure. I, I, I can certainly say that uh, they have different styles, um, uh, some different priorities, which became uh, clear as the new finance minister, um, you know, I, I took took the helm and, and started to uh, make decisions about which things would go at, uh, at the top of the agenda, which ones uh, would wait a bit more. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it was certainly uh, uh, some change, but um, um, all very capable people. <laughs> no, that that is fair. You you certainly do reserve the right to uh, plead the fifth um, whenever whenever we're getting a little too curious. That's fine. <laughs> One thing I was curious about was uh, this was a very odd time in parliamentary terms because we had programs that were, as you say, very large, and uh, we had very little idea of you know how much they would cost or passing uh, with. You know, a very, I mean, to, to call it an accelerated process, I think, is to put, is to really be a little, to put too fine a point on it. I mean, it was basically just like one and done kind of vote and, and on with it. Um, how did you feel about, or you, this is actually the wrong question, is what did you notice, if anything, about how the input of opposition was sort of being taken in? Uh, or, or, if you know, what the kind of reaction to it was at the, you know, either the political level or the, the, the bureaucratic level, as, as you're able to comment? Yeah, I, given that it's a minority parliament, I think that made a big difference to to that. If, if you were there in a majority parliament situation, you'd still need to coordinate a bit, I suppose, to get stuff through the House because of, you know, procedural delays that opposition yeah. even a minority could do. Because as you said, some things went through in one day, right? All three readings sent it off to the Senate and, and uh, the Senate did its thing. Um, um, and then royal assent, of course. Um, <laughs> um yeah, uh, but um, what certainly was the case and came up when decisions were being made is there'd be a check. Well, what, what do we what do we know about the uh, where the opposition parties are in this? And typically, again, that's not going to be PCO's job to figure that. They have to figure out. A, they assisted with legislative strategies, and they mm -hmm. said, "Is this legal?" Well, that's PCO's <laughs> job to figure out. Is that legal, or can we do? I don't even know what a warrant is, but there's, there's certain finance, there's certain oh, finance yeah. tricks and stuff yeah. that they could do to extend funding. And PCO would know the right paperwork to get that kind of stuff done and might suggest courses of action to get stuff done. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, on the political side, the ministers and, their, and, and staff would um, opine about where different opposition parties are and, 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 uh, and you know, be, in part because it was a minority parliament, but also just because they wanted to rush stuff through, would, um, you know, I, I, 
see who's on board and try to decide uh, how to proceed on that. Um, I think that would be a fairly normal thing that there would be, uh, again, I've only been there during the pandemic, but my suspicion is anytime you had a piece of legislation going through, there would be a meeting where legislative strategy is discussed and that would be uh, appropriate for both PCO and PMO to be there in their respective roles. One is giving advice on what's what's legal and what's not, and here are the forms, here's how we do it. And the other one making the decision of what is the right strategy to go. Yeah, and that's typically where the House leader is brought in as the person who has to execute the legislative strategy. Exactly, yeah. So the House yeah. leader would be in touch with the other House leaders. And I should say also the finance critics with the finance minister. Um, so there was perhaps more earlier in the pandemic than later, yes. uh, a, a good degree <laughs> of uh, cooperation and communication and trying to, to get stuff done. And, uh, you know, again, that was uh, most likely in certain ways normal, but in other ways, perhaps a, a bit more openness to that from uh, from all sides. So having, having been, uh, I will generously presume, an avid fan of the podcast, um, was, <laughs> was there anything... So you already you made reference to one, which was uh, the dynamic within PCO and the dynamic between PCO and the PMO. Was there anything else that sort of surprised you about your time in government that you took away? Um, you know, uh, as uh, an academic economist used to doing stuff on you know chalkboards and whiteboards, um, seeing what the actual constraints on policy are. Um, when, when I've talked about this with other economists, that oh, you mean the political constraints? They're always worried about <laughs> this district, and, and, and that I suppose does arise in their decisions, and we shouldn't pretend that it doesn't. But I'm talking about the other kinds of constraints that really do matter: the administrative constraints, yeah. the HR constraints, the IT constraints, the legal constraints, the federal-provincial relationships. Uh, these are all things that. You know, when an economist or an outsider says you should do policy X, it seems simple. I've made a spreadsheet, um, you know, that that we certainly heard all the time. And I don't mean to disparage those who try to put policies forward uh, because that's always very helpful. And, I, I, you know, I would read those things on Twitter. I would gather ideas out there. But when learns to be a bit more humble in making suggestions <laughs> um, like, gee, it seems obvious to me we should just do this. And then they're like. Yeah, which which computer, which 500 bureaucrats are going to handle the call-in center? You know, these are the, the real things uh, that that really do drive, especially in pandemic speed, um, a lot of policy decisions. So that's uh, one thing that I certainly will take away is is to have some. It's not that I want to constrain my fellow economists from making bold. Uh, ideas out there that's great um but just to have a bit of humbleness when your bold idea is not taken up it's not necessarily because you know uh, it was not a great idea or we don't like you it's sometimes like we don't have a computer that can do that yes yeah. the e, uh, the ei system in particular is sort of infamously running on kobold uh or however <laughs> however you kobold, pronounce that not particular... kobold. <laughs> oh, kobold are the little uh, little uh, <laughs> yes. lizard creatures from D&D. Yes. Uh, very yes. different yeah uh you, you certainly learn where your assets are and uh and uh learn to make to uh preface your suggestions with uh the condition like if the computer system will handle this <laughs> is it possible we could do x I think that's an interesting point because I think something Atan and I have realized over the last year, and Atan, correct me if I'm if I'm speaking for you inappropriately here, is that I think relative to how much airtime various issues get, state capacity and sort of like 
our administrative capacity is one that probably does not get enough in terms of that being a real limiting factor. And I remember very early in the pandemic when uh, they had uh, a, a several weeks delay in, in getting CERB out the door to begin with, people were like, well, why? You know, it, can't the government like cut people a check? And it turns out that it is not the, it is not a trivial work to, to cut someone a check at, at scale. Um, so that, that was, an, and I think over the last year or two, just in terms of you know, leaving aside the, the getting money out the door, you know, organizing testing strategies uh, in a pandemic context, what, what have you, um, is that this is a area of public policy that has kind of been uh, under the water in, in the iceberg of, of public policy uh, and probably underexplored. Yeah, well, to uh, go further on that, you know, it is. Uh, these are real constraints in doing something, you know, now in the next six months, in the next twelve yeah. months. But it is important to realize that the, putting all those ideas out there is really important. Government can do really, really big things uh, with enough to lead time and enough uh, <laughs> uh, 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 relaxing of those constraints, which can happen over time. Just to give a very small, very narrow policy example, there's been some discussion of a wealth tax. Uh, that mm-hmm. It was in 2019. A couple of parties had it in their platform. And one thing that made me roll my eyes even before this term in government, even more now having a bit more experience, is they're like, yeah, uh, we're going to put that in place for 2020. Um, it, we're just going to get that done. And and no, you're not just going to get that done in 2020. <laughs> that would be that would be a hard thing to do. That said, if you're I, I don't want to trim the sales uh, in terms of being a. Uh, you know, a, a, a nitpicker um, of getting that done eventually. If you, if that's your big priority in government, to do a wealth tax. You can totally get that done. Um, you know, we could have a debate about whether that's the right policy, etc. But just can you get it done? Sometimes uh, uh, people like wave their fingers a bit too much and nitpick, saying, "Oh, that sounds hard." Yeah, hard things are hard. Um, but uh, you can't do it tomorrow. But if you really make it your priority as government, you can do really hard things. But we just need to have a bit of caution about how hard they are. <laughs> sure, and that's a good point too. Is I think you 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 mentioned priority there, which I think is is really a critical part of this discussion. Which is I think this is a point I've, I've made to some folks uh, not on the podcast, but I, I think there has been a, you know I think it's fair to say everyone here would probably agree there there's been a real um, growth in kind of the horizons of people's policy imaginations, especially on the left in the last like five six years. Like the debate has changed pretty significantly, and I think that. You know, a lot of that, you know, you can look at a million different things. I think a lot of that is, is kind of the, the Bernie Sanders campaign in the U.S. sort of, you know, saying we're going to do big, big things and it's going to happen. And I think there was a very important positive effect of of saying that things are possible and that they are worth doing. But I think that there is unfortunately something of a conflation between recognizing that things are possible and things are worth doing with the idea that things are actually easy to do. Uh, <laughs> which in the, and I, you know, the, as you say, it's not to, to demean people who think that. And like, I, I, similar to you, I think my, my exposure just at, at more remove to sort of like how ponderous some of the, the mechanisms can be has been, uh, has instilled some humility in, in me on this. Um, but that I think is a really important thing for, for folks, uh, who are more on my side of the spectrum to to keep in mind is that like if we want to do big things we're gonna to have to buckle in for for you know a real process uh, and and some of that is gonna to have to be very boring work of just like making processes work better uh which is is not going to win you any votes but it will probably help you a lot down the line 
let, let me just add that there is not a ton of reporting and coverage naturally um, of that side of Ottawa, right? All, all of the Which hurdles and obstacles that you described are generally limited to the ministerial briefing notes or the internal briefing notes, and governments are loath to articulate reasons why they are not um, pursuing or considering various policies. The CRSB, I think, is in the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit, which is sort of the federal paid sick leave program, yeah. I think is a good example here, where the government has been saying, uh, in response to provinces saying, well, the, the federal government already has a program, why doesn't it just make it better, uh, is that... All I've heard from the federal government is we can't, and there seems to be some sort of administrative reason for that related to how they, they cut the checks and how they calculate the benefits. Uh, but unless you're articulating very clearly what that rationale is, it's very easy for people to say, well, that doesn't sound all that serious. Yeah, I, you know, on that particular example, there's certain legal issues there. The federal government cannot regulate 90 for 95% of the labor market because it's provincial areas of, of regulation. So they can't make it mandatory, right? So you, 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 I, without it being mandatory, firms might not take it up, which gets you right back kind of where we are. And so mm -hmm. that's in the provinces. So there's that aspect of it. And there's also then the administrative delivery aspect, which doing stuff for yeah. the CRA, as we learned with CERB, you can get it done within four or five days, but it's not that continuous paycheck. If you're going to do something with that continuous paycheck, that has to be a labor market regulation. Um, can we invent a way that uh, the, the federal government can have the CRA direct deposit the same day? Um, I suppose. Um, if, I don't know. That sounds hard. Um, so, yeah, these are the kind of things that come up. And why is it that relevant ministers don't get into the weeds on this stuff? I think it's because outside of the um, legions of people who listen to this particular podcast, um, I'm not sure the, you know, the, uh, the wheels and machinery of government is that interesting out there. I think it just, they'd rather just get off the weedsy stuff and say, yeah. well, um, that's Premier Joe's fault, not ours, so go talk to him. And they just don't want to get into those oh, yeah, legal no, or it's, administrative details. So, so I agree it's very understandable you, why politicians don't want to do it. I, I agree with you 100% at the politician's level. My, my voice of advocacy here is, Put it out into the media environment, maybe in the technical briefing or wherever else. Explain to people. Too often government, uh, they live by, all governments, frankly, live by the mantra that if you're explaining, you're losing. Um, or keep it simple. And they're, they are loath to explain things in technical detail um, that are often beneficial to their cause. That are like, mm -hmm. here are the reasons why we can't do it. Here are the reasons why we cannot re-engineer the EI system overnight to meet these demands. And here's why we're using the CRA because, you know, the Auditor General has been very mean to the CRA over the past years. And now the CRA has capacity to do things and that's why we're using the CRA. But so rarely are those stories told. And well, they're not going to make the front page of the Globe and Mail, I think it's all important information to be out there sort of churning through academia, churning through sort of the entire policy sphere in order for people to understand their governments and how they're governed. Yeah, let me let, let me tell you about EI reform, man. Uh, there's a big thing <laughs> called uh, benefit delivery moder uh, modernization, a big new computer system for EI that is uh, to be rolling out over the next, I have to say, years, I'm afraid. Um, but that will unlock a lot of really interesting possibilities and reforms. So, you know, uh, it's coming. Um, the, the other thing I'd note about that is the acronym inside government for that is BDM, which is way too close if you add an S in there. Just, <laughs> I, I had to be very careful when I said this not to slip and throw the... the yeah, anyway. Um, no, I, I know EI in particular is one that the government has been loath to update because... It is a reliable system that has operated for a very long time and cuts very important checks 
uh, to a very significant amount of people. Um, and so there is just a, a incredible fear of something like, you know, you need to replace these systems, but these systems don't have the tolerance to fail. I mean, once upon a time, I would have said maybe the paycheck system can't fail, but we have uh, Phoenix. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we've seen what that looks like, but this would be an order of magnitude larger than Phoenix um, in terms of the amount of potential failure, right? Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it is... Um going to be something that is with us uh, for a while. So for all those budding policy wonks out there, uh, start writing your EI reform papers. It, the, the, the ship will not have sailed by the time your paper <laughs> is done. Uh, there will be room for a lot of input on that. But the other thing there is, uh, you know, I'll call it a policy constraint. If you set out a policy constraint that those who are using it as a annual seasonal employment subsidy, if they are to be made no worse off, thinking of people for, in uh, you know seasonal industries yeah if you said as a constraint that those folks can't be made worse off in any reform that really makes reform hard because anything you could think about doing um you know it, ei is doing a lot of things at once one is uh, subsidizing these seasonal industries and the workers in it other thing is you know irregular unemployment that someone might have every four or five years there's the training aspect to it there's the maternity leave and paternity leave aspect to it these are all in one happy big program and and, and boy uh, it's 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 quite a quite an interesting dinner table when all the parts of EI get together for Thanksgiving. <laughs> <laughs> How's that for a metaphor? <laughs> so I, I think uh, now might be a good moment to zoom out um, and to sure. bridge from sort of what we had in mind for the initial conversation being sort of the exit interview to the broader conversation about sort of macroeconomic policy um, budget yeah. 2021. Um, I guess my first question off the bat, presuming uh, everyone listening will be broadly aware of sort of um, what has gone on economically in the last year, um, is the question of inflation. I think uh, it has, it's now at the tip of a lot of people's tongues. Um, you know, I'm getting messages from friends talking about credit default swaps and the amount of M1 currency uh, going around and whether or not hyperinflation is around the corner. Um, and then to back it up, they'll use examples like the price of lumber, um, right? You know, a two by four is no longer three bucks. It's now 10 bucks. Um, is the CPI basket of goods representative uh, of what people are buying? What are the problems with it? Is inflation a threat? I mean, that's a lot of questions in there. Um, but I guess I would sum it to say, what is your concern or your view in terms of uh, where we stand in terms of our ability to control inflation coming out of this. Yeah, so if, if uh, back in June 2020, when I, I started, you had told me that uh, the biggest problem was not uh, a massive once in a century depression, which remember, <laughs> put your head back to June 2020. That's everyone what was waiting for. About. Yeah. Um, and uh, I remember on one other podcast, there was a commentator who until well into fall 2020 said, it's just around the corner. It's just around the corner. There's going to be mass unemployment. Um, she was uh, not correct in that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, um, so if you told me back in June 2020 that uh, um, that our biggest problem was going to be the economy is overheating, that we have too much employment and that's going to lead to inflation, I would have said, wow, um, that's uh, that that's interesting. Um, so, yeah, I... I, I Looks like things may be running hot in the U.S. and perhaps in Canada as well. Um, what that means is it might manifest in inflation. So first of all, what is inflation? Uh, 
Statistics Canada takes a, a basket of goods and prices them every month um, and then uh, compares it to previous months and previous years to calculate an average increase in prices across the economy. In that basket uh, are various things ranging from food to gas to some measures of housing to uh, uh, various other things that we consume. That basket is updated every few years. Um, they change the weights on different uh, different products. And uh, that's uh, how we measure inflation. These are things that consumers buy. So some things that are important there, what's not in there uh, is directly, at least I, I shouldn't say it's not in there at all, uh, lumber prices, input prices. So industrial inputs, let's say, uh, you know, uh, iron ingots or something like that, right? <laughs> so people, it might be that lumber My is ingots. in the basket because people do buy lumber retail. But uh, in terms of industrial inputs like ingots, um, you know, that's not in there. That's a producer price rather than a consumer price. So the CPI, the C is for consumer. Um, so we have seen certain things like lumber prices have uh, skyrocketed over the past few months, although it's come down a bit the past week, actually. Um, this is uh, uh, has happened before over the past 20 years where we have seen some commodity price cycles where lumber and you know, uh, corn and soy have really had a, a, a skyrocketing uh, uh, episode uh, and then comes back down. We've seen the same thing with various measures of money supply going up or down. And all of that over the last 20 years, these are things that have happened, but have not fed into actual consumer price inflation that you see in that basket of goods. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that they tend to be a bit transitory, you know, thinking of lumber. Yeah. Um, when lumber prices go up by a factor of four or five, that's the market giving a signal to producers that, hey, you should cut down some more trees. And uh, we do have the technology for doing that. Uh, and uh, it may take a few months. Very controversial but, uh, in BC, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, although uh, there are some constraints here that are, are what is uh, uh, not in good shape because of the mountain pine beetle and uh, climate change and all of that. Um, but uh, in a global sense, there will be more trees cut down. And this will help to uh, smooth out that uh, what may be a transitory lumber shock. The other thing I would note is that uh, lumber going up while other things are staying constant. This is not inflation. This is a relative price change. There are always relative price changes. Some things go up, other things go down. And that is something that uh, just is a signal that maybe you should consume less lumber and more of the other stuff. And this is what happens every day naturally in an economy. Inflation is when things, you know, all go up. Now, that said, so I'm, I, I don't mean to suggest that inflation is not a problem, that we shouldn't be worried about it. But there's uh, the main signal that I would be looking for is what's going on in the bond market. Those guys uh, and, and gals um, uh, are trading billions of dollars a day in Canadian bonds. And their job is to see what's coming up with inflation and interest rates. And if and when the bond market starts to freak out about inflation, I will have a different view about whether it's going to be happening. Um, I don't see that yet. The 10-year bond, I looked this morning, was in the neighborhood of 2.2%. So that incorporates uh, not much inflation expectation over the next 10 years. Um, so people who have billions of dollars on the line are not betting that there's going to be a lot of inflation. So that's uh, one point. The other point is imagine that the bond market is wrong and that, you know, uh, my uh, uh, position right now that it, 
these things look like they may be more transitory than otherwise. Imagine I'm wrong. Imagine the bond market is wrong. What happens then? Are we going to see hyperinflation? Are we going to see something big? And the answer is no, because the Bank of Canada has one job and their one job is to stop inflation. <laughs> and it would be painful if they did that. But I can tell you, if we started to see CPI move up into the mid single digits in a sustained way, maybe the April or May or June 2021 report has some blip because of lumber prices and other things. But in a sustained way, over a period of like a number of months, we see it hit the middle digits. The Bank of Canada is going to hit the brakes super hard because that is their job. Their mandate is very clear. And uh, knowing people who work there, uh, knowing the attitude of the place, um, I won't say they would do it with glee, but I'm saying they wouldn't hesitate. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I just want to zoom out slightly from that discussion of the sort of like nuts and bolts of it to, yeah. to paint a picture of something of I, I think sure. why the inflation thing is perhaps a little uh, as you said a year ago no one thought our biggest economic concern would be inflation um, and no one was investing uh, <laughs> so we're coming out of a deep 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 uh, temporary shock with you know a sort of like constrained capacity during that time because you know fewer people are at work uh into a sudden and unexpected boom i think what you would expect is sort of things that are in high demand would jump uh and lumber in particular i've seen some good analysis around that the lumber industry has kind of been systematically in a position of underinvestment since the 2008 housing crash uh just because expectations have not been high um, so, you know, sawmills haven't invested, woodlot owners haven't invested, uh, et cetera. Uh, so that sort of caught sort of everyone by surprise in an industry where they were not expecting it. So you, you would expect a supply constraint in that situation. I've heard the same argument made around uh, chips, not not potato chips, but the uh, the electronic kind. Uh, that Less it's tasty. just once it... Yes, indeed. Yeah, I wouldn't say... Yes, uh, <laughs> stick to potato well, chips. Well, you know, because, uh, everyone... Shakun son goo. That would, that would be a pricey bag at this point, I would say. Uh, yeah, and it's a similar situation where there is just a hard supply constraint in the supply chains globally that just hasn't been corrected in the sort of two, three month blip of this being a thing, which you would, you, once again, which yeah. I think you would expect. So let, you, let me... I've, heard, I've certainly heard the same things about shipping costs and containers and, yeah. and there's these things. Oh yeah, I forgot about that. The, yeah, yeah, there's a, God, apparently like very a big ago. backups of, of, of shipping. Uh, again, <laughs> these are things in order to uh, uh, have gotten this right, you would have had to predict six months ago that this was all going to turn out just smashingly and the biggest problem was people couldn't spend fast enough in their yeah. local stores. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, I didn't predict that and neither did uh, a lot of the uh, wholesalers who, you know, if they were smart, they would have shipped all their stuff in January 2021 rather than waiting till June. Uh, they didn't. And so there's a backlog. The, 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 yeah. the, the proof of the uh, pudding will be uh, whether we are um, – uh, still seeing this a few months from now, whether this works its way out or not. And, you know, I do hold out the possibility that uh, something uh, inflation does start, but I have faith in the Bank of Canada to uh, fulfill their mandate. So this is one side of the argument. I just want to present the other side and then we can move on to a different part of the sort of the macroeconomic picture. Sure. The other side is those who are uh, skeptical of the amount of currency in the market or sort of in the market in Canadian hands. Uh, one of the talking points or uh, points that Freeland made a 
few months ago now was about like uh, Canadians are sitting on a hundred billion dollars of cash uh, in their checkings account, basically. Um, you might call that preloaded stimulus. Uh, that's, that's where I was going. <laughs> this is the, the preloaded stimulus. Um, you know, Canadians are getting more from CERB than they otherwise would have had. There is too much money sloshing around in people's accounts, and that will be a cause of uh, a cause of inflation in and of itself, irrespective of the supply uh, supply chain constraints. Yeah. Uh, so what's interesting, the Bank of Canada uh, research uh, department put out a paper, uh, I want to say end of last year, beginning of this year, um, looking at where the household savings issue was coming from. It was not actually the, you know, the lower quintiles of the income distribution. It was more the higher income folks, people like me sitting in my yeah. basement in Burnaby who can't go on vacation and, and, and spend my money in other ways were piling up savings. It wasn't so much the, you know, SERB recipients uh, I, I, on average that were doing that. Uh, but in terms of the dollars stacking up, the, the preloaded stimulus, the idea that there was going to be some money brought back in, uh, to uh, spending as the pandemic uh, abates uh, was certainly something that, you know, uh, people in the finance ministry who are doing their simulations of wh where the economy is going, that was taken into account. Um, again, no one really knew uh, how much of that preloaded stimulus would be spent. It was likely not going to be zero, likely not going to be all of it because some of it was invested in important things like Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> uh, but um the other aspect of it is I, I, I just pulled out the labor force survey. There are still uh, 1.6 million Canadians who are counted by Stats Canada as unemployed. Another oh, uh, million plus who are under who are not counted as unemployed but are out of the labor market because maybe their kids are home from school. Unemployment mm -hmm. rate is 8%, 8 8.1%. Um, guys, we're not at full capacity here. Uh, and so yeah. while uh, there are these interesting tight spots on the economy, uh, I remain unconvinced that the economy is running at full cylinders right now. I think there is uh, a lot of spare capacity out there. And so I'm not as concerned as some that these extra billions are going to run up against a very tight economy. One other aspect of that that might be a bit different, the U.S., I mean, whatever we did uh, uh, in the budget here in Canada uh, in 2021, I mean, the U.S. has been spending trillions and that was just with the first round. They have two more rounds, the family plan and then the infrastructure plan that are spending trillions more. If that all gets through Congress, that is a lot of money sloshing around. Um, and I, not just the regular times 10 order of magnitude difference of Canada and the U.S., but just, <laughs> you know, way, way, way bigger than what we've perceived in Canada. In Canada, I mean, the uh, stimulus was on the order of 1% of GDP per year, but they're doing many multiples of that in the US. Yeah. So, I, um, you know, that if I was worried about some kind of too much money floating around thing, I'd be more uh, interested to see what goes on in the US and whether they soak up their spare capacity first. Yeah, I think their, their sort of operating theory is that the sort of usual expectations of what the output gap are have been probably too conservative over the last decade since the Great Recession and that they are trying to sort of undo some of that latent well not latent but some of the the baked in conservatism of the last 12 years or so and kind of just and and of course i i think if, if there was a biden gave a speech to the joint session of congress not that long ago and i think that was sort of his his frame here was that like we need to to kick off a, a big cycle of spending to sort of beat the chinese which was a look if they're spending the money to to get people working again i'm not unhappy though i, I could do without i think the the cold war framing but that's fair uh i'm not the president of the u.s 
Um, yeah, well, but I think that's the certainly you see that. Uh, that is, uh, I'll, I'll shift the commentary to the U.S. so I can speak more freely. In the U.S., you certainly hear um, that a concern was over the past 20 years, the central bank has hit the brakes too quickly. A little hint yeah. of inflation, the hit slam on the brakes, and it extended the recovery from the great financial crisis by years. That is a concern you yeah. hear. And so something you hear in more uh, liberal in the U.S. context, liberal circles in the U.S., uh, is... Uh, Let's make the mistake the other way this time of trying to run it too hot and just see how how close we get because we haven't gotten yeah. there in the past 20 years. Let's just try it and see how it goes. And so uh, we fucked around. Now we're going to find out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think there, there's a good point you make about the, the central bank there because I think there's kind of a, a, a somewhat tongue-in-cheek theory that the inflation target – and I, this is a tongue-in-cheek theory on sort of my side of things – that there is a – they, they, there is a treatment of the inflation target as the effective upper bound rather than as the target. Yeah. And uh, yeah, is that a thing you would you would agree with at least as a, a kind of winking, uh, somewhat jokey assessment? No, that certainly uh, seems to have been the case. The U, uh, the U.S. Uh, central bank, the uh, Jay Powell, has explicitly said they want to move towards on average hitting it rather than using it as a cap. Um, so you yeah. can you run too hot for a while if you ran too cold for a while. Uh, I should note the Bank of Canada mandate is up in 2021. This is something that will start to enter the wonkier policy discussions over the next few months. So uh, I start to read up on that. Uh, check out what the mandate for the Bank of Canada will be. Um, and for your uh, preferred political ideology, uh, start to read up <laughs> on what it ought to be because uh, that's something that's yes. going to be on the well, table in the months to come. That's a really interesting point because I think, you know, we've talked, and I, I know we're killing a tan here by talking about the U.S., but uh, <laughs> the, 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 the Federal Reserve famously has a dual mandate, right, to, to limit inflation and also to promote full employment. And Canada, we don't have that. We just have a mandate to limit inflation. Uh, if I were my, my former colleagues on the Hill right now, I would be thinking hard about having that discussion about how we can have a, uh, a dual mandate or something like it. Uh, but I am I am no longer on there, so uh, I will just have to broadcast into the void. Yeah, there could be a dual mandate. There could be uh, incorporating asset prices, housing prices, uh, Bitcoin prices into the framework. There could be uh, <laughs> Doge climate change, inequality, uh, lots yeah. of stuff one could potentially pull into the framework. Um, uh, and uh, so those are discussions that we're going to be having over the next few months. Yes, though I, I, I do wonder how much we will actually have that conversation in, in our political environment because I, I don't know that we're adult enough to do it. <laughs> I, I, so the, the way that actually works is the, I, I was looking up the mandate the other day, actually. Uh, it's a joint statement by the finance minister and the Bank of Canada, uh, the, the uh, uh, governor of the Bank of Canada. And so uh, that seems like it's wholly executive. There's no parliamentary uh, ratification necessary. Oh, that's interesting. That right? I didn't know that. I, I I just, I, I'm saying what I saw is that there's a letter that's written and, and yeah. signed. Each of them write the same letter and they sign it. Yeah, um, I suspect that's, that that's probably the case, yeah. I, I'm not terribly surprised that there's not a parliamentary mechanism in there. Um, no, it's a pretty, it's a pretty, like, it's an executive heavy function, right? Like, it's, it's an independent agency and the, the Minister of Finance. So I, I'm not surprised that there is yeah. no, like, because the, the Bank of Canada Act doesn't say, like, upon parliamentary review so yeah well there's, it's, there's, there's, yeah, the requirement there. for a man there's no requirement for a mandate this is just made up um which yeah. is I, I think it's a good thing to have the mandate but uh it's not a statutory requirement um i don't think uh, someone could tell me if i'm wrong but uh 
Yeah. I mean, it's, I, it's I don't have a copy akin. of the Bank of Canada Act in front of me, I'm afraid. <laughs> just, right. just speculating, but I guess it was probably every department and every agency comes up with their own mandate, and they're not necessarily always in legislation, right? No. Um, particularly if it's a mandate that's seen as somewhat flexible. Though at the same time, recognizing that there is no formal parliamentary mechanism here, I, there is no formal parliamentary mechanism for declaring war either, but... Right. Uh, yeah, I, I would hope to see that there's like advice the, of parliament. the finance committee or something at least has some hearings yes. and has uh, some uh, some people in it to chat. Speaking of chatting, before we uh, finish up, I, I, I'm like, I'm in control of the podcast here, but I'm not. <laughs> uh, hey, do you want to talk about budget policy? Because uh, that, that that's, uh, that's something a, a guy could talk about. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I would just let you tee off in that case. Yeah, what, what exactly would you like to talk about? I'm all ears. Well, I would like to make two points. Um, one, one is that holy cow, uh, uh, the um, debt to GDP ratio is uh, already set to start coming back down, uh, like next year. And um, again, if you told me that a year ago, that would have been um, uh, yeah. really good news to see. Um, oh, good news from the point <laughs> of view. I, I'm one who tends to like that as a, a way to think about a long-run, sustainable, and fair fiscal policy, which is. Uh, you should uh, not pass on more debt as a share of the economy uh, to the next generation. I think that's a good thing. Um, so that's uh, quite a thing to shoehorn all of this emergency spending, all the extra interest on the debt, a bunch of new programs and still have that happen was uh, interesting to see that uh, it could be fit into the fiscal framework. And I don't mean interesting. It's like I'm, I'm, I'm casting doubt on it. Actually, it, it did fit. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's it's uh, it's legit, but it's it's amazing that happens. That's point one. Um, uh, and that's kind of like when I hear the, the fiscal hawks out there complaining about this or that it's like what more do you want there's a debt to gdp ratio going down we can argue about the slope and maybe they should be going down a bit more steeply than otherwise but you know the idea that this is some kind of radically uh, irresponsible budget is just doesn't hold this is a i mean the, the idea of debt to gdp going down in today's context is a center-right context okay <laughs> uh so this is this is not some kind of radical uh left budget there's no no way around that with the debt to gdp going down the second thing i would point out is in year five of this program 2025 26 a long way away the projected deficit is 30 billion dollars which is oh around one percent of gdp which essentially is kind of where we were <laughs> Yeah, that's that's been incredible to me is that like our our costs for our our service costs this year were lower than they were the year before, for instance. Um, And it's it's incredible how much we've just been able to completely absorb the entire fiscal shock at at the federal level. That said, I think that does open the door to conversations around the provinces. Uh, Newfoundland sort of to no one's attention went bankrupt like twice over the last year and was quietly bailed out by the feds. Um, and other provinces have, have sort of lesser and greater sustainability issues with, with their sort of fiscal track. But there's no arguing that the feds are in very, very good shape. Yeah, I, which I think is, is interesting for two reasons. One is, um, you know, I, I remember back the last time I was on your FAIR podcast, um, and uh, we, we had uh, great debates about whether a $20 billion deficit was a horrible thing and and uh, and and you know then we hit 350 billion um and and survived it and it's going to be going back to kind of the track it was on um so uh that's uh uh one thing i note about it um and i forget what the second one was so i'll go on to the second point you made uh which was about the, <laughs> the provinces uh, for the provinces that is where it's important i 
going into the before the pandemic, um, we already knew provinces were going to be in a difficult position because of upcoming health costs as the baby boomers hit their most expensive health years. We kind of knew that we as uh, economists to look at these things. Um, it, it got worse over the pandemic. There's an increased yeah. need, not just for health expenditures, but we all know that long term care sector is likely going to require some more public dollars uh, and um, other things that are on the provincial uh, uh, plate as well. And so, you know, that's going to require us to get back into discussions of where revenue comes from and uh, how we do that at the provincial federal level. Are we going to have a bigger Canada health and social transfer, Canada health transfer, Canada social transfer? Um, or are we going to have uh, provinces just do it on their own? Uh, or is there going to be some grand bargain at the federal provincial level? I don't know the answer, but I'm here to tell you this will be what's dominating our fiscal discussions over the next nine years. Because yeah. that was one thing the provinces were asking for was billions of dollars in additional um, transfers, particularly in the in the realm of health, in order to deal with COVID. Yes. That wasn't something that was included in the government, uh, sorry, in the budget. And the feds basically said, uh, maybe next year, like we, we've got our eye on that ball, um, but it wasn't this time around. The, province, uh, the provinces are crying foul. Uh, the feds defense seems to largely be, you know, we did our part during the pandemic. We spent eight to one um, in terms of responding to it. That's, that's one of the talking points that's been bandied about Ottawa a lot. I think it was nine to one at one point and has since come down to about eight to one um, in terms of the federal government taking on debt in, you know, a lot of areas of traditional provincial jurisdiction um, <laughs> in order to support the provinces. But the the contentious remaining one seems to be on health transfers, where if you listen to Quebec, they'll talk about it once upon a time was a 50-50 split. Yeah, that's um, the really important context here. Yeah, when the Canada Health Act was passed, that was sort of the bargain of the provinces. So that was going to be 50-50. Over time, in the sort of half century since the Canada Health Act has passed, we're down to like a 20-80, give or take. Uh, which you can but, see why the province... Because it's, it's kind of a wicked action problem for the feds because they get no credit for health spending. Uh, but they have to do a lot of it. <laughs> and, and increasing it by 30% would be... Uh, it's a big ticket item that you were getting zero credit for. And the... Na well, all of the transfers... Uh, Not to say they are, shouldn't do it. ...are <laughs> that. But also, the nature of health spending has changed from where yes. once upon a time, you know, setting up a hospital with insulin and a few doctors here and there... Um, yeah, you was, died at 55 and it was for treating... ...was you know, much more cost-effective. <laughs> and now we're talking about, you know, medications that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars an individual. Yeah. Um, you know, MRIs, all the different medical diagnostics has made um, medicine as a share of our economy much more, or as a share of our spending much, much, much more expensive, which is why yeah. that skew has happened. Yeah, I mean, uh, to, to be fair, beyond thinking about which tax to increase and who should increase it, there is, of course, the other side of that budget, which is you could cut some spending in some way or cut the growth of spending in some way. Uh, when you're talking about the health sector, it's mostly salaries, right? And so you can do that. Uh, Pre-pandemic, uh, Premier Kenny in Alberta had set out a path <laughs> to try to do that, upset a few doctors here and there. Um, and uh, one of the consequences of the pandemic, it, it has brought to the fore uh, how much uh, we, we like our, our, our health professionals. And um, it may be a little tougher to make them uh, the bad guy here and try to cut their wages. Um, so, you know, you, you can invent different ways to try to do health. And, you know, we're, we're going to have only one guy make the beds instead of two or something like that. 
there are ways to squeeze some efficiency out of there. I'm just a bit skeptical that in such a labor-intensive sector as 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 health provision, that uh, we're going to find some magical way uh, until the robots come anyway. The, uh, it's it's funny you mentioned that because there there seemed to be a multi-partisan consensus um, in some provinces that uh, the inflation of doctor wages was a uh, an issue whose time it had come to tackle. Um, but as soon as Kenny tried to tackle it, it very, that consensus very quickly fell apart. Um, and it certainly absolutely was not uh, benefited by the fact that it was a global pandemic uh, shortly yeah. thereafter. Doctors are, are tough in that way because they have a very in-demand set of skills with a very, very high barrier to entry. And it's very easy for them to jurisdiction shop, not just within Canada, but within the U.S. where the doctor's salaries are even incredibly high compared to in Canada where they are merely high. Uh, so it's, it's, yeah, you, it's, it's a, it's similar. It's, yeah, it's a tough problem similar to how uh, jurisdictions tax shop. Um, but sort of the, uh, yeah, other side of the coin on that. Yeah. So the, the, the uh, meta point here is that, uh, you know, worries about the federal government uh, having a out of control budget deficit. Uh, my concern about that is quite small. Uh, my concern that, uh, there's going to be a large imbalance in the federal provincial uh, uh, fiscal relations uh, is, is much higher. And, you know, um, that's kind of where my brain is uh, looking forward as I think about where I might contribute more to policy in the years to come. Uh, I have a couple of projects in mind to try to think about that, uh, that issue of how we should try to uh, uh, make sure that Newfoundland doesn't go bankrupt. <laughs> we, we like Newfoundland. Newfoundland is a port of part we of We really like Newfoundland. Here in Burnaby, we're huge fans. And Perfect. Well, I think that and is a, uh, a great note to leave it on. Um, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. And yeah, we're always delighted to have a, a repeat guest because then uh, they, they've gotten the, the weird vibe down by the end of the first one. So they're they're more prepared the second time. Yes, and it's not often we have a repeat guest or a, a guest who has then been seconded into PCO to help them run, uh, run the ball financially um, during one of the most strenuous economic uh, crises of our generation. I, I, I don't think I think it's hard to exaggerate how we how we frame the significance of COVID economically. The, the, the arse really went right out of her there. Uh, it, it really did. <laughs> we forget that a little bit it, now. <laughs> it, it, it really did. I, I think as we look back and we talk about what should have happened with this policy or that or, or uh, things we could have done better, those are all good discussions to have. And, and there will be some kind of commission, I'm sure, looking at the health mistakes and maybe the economic mistakes that were made. But man, uh, looking back into what things looked like in March and April and May 2020, uh, it, it, it looked bad, man. And uh, uh, now we're looking at a question of whether we're running hot or too hot. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the Royal Commission uh, recommendation that says that you should have been uh, hired in January or February instead of <laughs> instead of much later. A, a little that would require some foresight good. and a tipping off from the uh, from the Wuhan lab. Lab, yeah. yes. Well, Professor Milligan, thank you so much for for joining us. Uh, this was a, a real treat, and uh, yeah, we really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.